0: A few weeks ago, I was uh, out on the internet and uh, found a a website that was uh, fascinating to me. It's called The Experience Project. Some of you may be familiar with The Experience Project. It's the largest community on the internet of shared experiences ever created. And the point of it is to be able to to share something that you've experienced or something that you feel and find uh, other people who will empathize with you. And one part of the website was dedicated to people who hate God. And so I've put a few of their comments up here on the screen. And For those, of, uh, for those people that are listening through our podcast, I'm going to read them. Uh, go ahead and put that up if you would. First one says, uh, I hate God. I just expletive hate you, and I hope you see my message through technology, that you are so expletive unworthy, expletive you, you know what you did to me. I don't mean to offend anyone, the second person says, or maybe I do. I'm uncertain. What I am certain of is that I hate God. And then the third one says, I'm not sure whether or not God exists, but I really hope He does because I hate Him with every fiber in my being, and I would like to tell Him every reason why I hate Him when I die. Kind of shocking to hear that kind of anger toward God expressed Openly, isn't it? Kind of shocking. But, but I want you to hear me on this. Okay? Hear me on this. That what is most shocking about the hatred that those three people express toward God, what's most shocking about it is that it is precisely what is at the root of every human heart, even yours, even yours, even mine. And The Bible is very clear on this. That at the core of your being, you aren't just indifferent toward God. Not that you just don't like God, but that there is an enmity, an antagonism, a hatred toward God, that the passage that we're going to look at today is going to lay bare. Aren't you so glad you came to church this morning? But here's the thing, I want you to understand, I, you know, my job here is not to whisper sweet nothings in your ear every Sunday morning. That's not what any of us need. What we need, what we all desperately need, is someone to tell us the truth. And so Jesus is going to do that today in the passage that we're going to look at. If you have a Bible with you, turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And I do want to welcome those of you who are listening to our podcast. Some of you, uh, I hear from people all the time that, that you guys listen to this uh, podcast. And some of you are listening while you're driving, some of you while you're working out, some when you're trying to put yourself to sleep at night, whatever. Uh you reason, you listen, we are just absolutely glad that you're listening. For those of you who are new here, we're in a series from the book of Mark called The Last Days of Jesus Christ. And the passage that we're going to look at today is on Wednesday of Holy Week, meaning that in just two days, Jesus is going to be crucified on a Roman cross. Now, the day before, on Tuesday... Jesus had skewered the religious leaders of Israel for their hypocrisy and for their spiritual fruitlessness. And the religious leaders are furious about that. The next day, which would be today, Wednesday, they go to Jesus and they angrily confront him about where he gets his authority to say things like he said to them. But Jesus doesn't directly answer them, he ties them up in a logical conundrum and And uh, and again, never directly answers their question. One, because they weren't sincere in asking. And two, because they already knew where he got the authority. They'd already seen his authority uh, demonstrated over and over. They knew where he got the authority. Now chapter 12 is a continuation of Jesus' response to those uh, religious leaders. And they'll get their answer here. Chapter 12, book of Mark. Let's read from verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers, and he moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, but they seized him, beat him. And sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, well, they'll respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. Jesus asks, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? Oh, don't you know that the religious leaders love that? It's like going up to a bunch of seminarians and say, haven't you read the Scriptures? Anyway, haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is Marvelous in our eyes. That's Psalm 118 that he's reading from there. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Okay, so here's what I want to do this morning. The way I want to start this is I want to give you a key to this parable that can kind of help you understand what's going on. We'll call this key uh, the cast of characters, all right? So let's put that up on the screen. First of all, the man who plants the vineyard is God the Father. The vineyard itself is Israel. Okay, There's many times in uh, the prophets that the nation of Israel is called a vineyard. In fact, if you were to go and read the book of Isaiah in chapter 5, everything in this parable is almost word for word what is said in Isaiah chapter 5. The tenants are the religious leaders of Israel. The servants are faithful prophets that God has sent to the nation of Israel over the years. And then the beloved son, you know who that is. That's, that's Jesus. Now, now, here's an important question. Who is this parable directed to? Now, I realize that in verse 12, the religious leaders say that it's directed at them, and that is true, but you need to understand something else. There is another layer to this parable. It is not just about the religious leaders in Israel. This parable is about you, and it's about me too, and I want to show you why. I want to look at three things, three things in this parable this morning. First, I want to look at the tenant's relationship to the owner. And then second, I want to look at the tenant's treatment of the servants. And then third, I want to look at the tenant's attitude toward the son. Okay, so you got that? The tenant's relationship to the owner, their treatment of the servants, and then their attitude toward the son. We'll start with the tenant's relationship to the owner. So what is their relationship? Well, verse 1 described that pretty well. The owner went to a great deal of expense to turn this piece of land that he owns into a vineyard, and then he rents it to those guys who were farmers, whose, whose job it was to tend this vineyard for his profit, which would be paid in fruit every harvest time. And then they could keep some of the fruit according to the wages he paid them. So bottom line, the owner is the owner, and the tenants are the tenants. It's pretty simple. Now at one level, as we said, this is about the religious leaders of Israel. And as I showed you in the key uh, earlier, it was quite common for the Old Testament prophets to refer to Israel as a vineyard. And in fact, for those of you who are in city life groups, I'll, I'll include uh, Isaiah 5 uh, on the questions that I provide so that you can see how, uh, how much of almost a one-to-one correspondence you see between Isaiah 5 and this particular parable, Okay. And so the tenants were the religious leaders who were responsible for the spiritual oversight and the spiritual growth and development of the vineyard, the nation of Israel. They were responsible to help the nation produce spiritual fruit. For those of you who have been with us, that's the connection back to the previous chapter. That's what Jesus skewered the religious leaders for, being fruitless. But what do we see throughout this parable. One of the things that we see is the tenants don't want to just be tenants. They want to be owners. They want the property and the profits for themselves. And this is precisely what the Religious leaders did with the nation of Israel. They disregarded God's wishes for, for His people, and they led the people in a way that essentially stole God's glory for themselves. And then to make matters worse, they, they lined their pockets through the misuse of their uh, religious leadership position. And this, the Bible teaches, is the very disposition of every human heart for God. We don't want to just be tenants. We want to be owners. Now think about your own life. Think about your own life. You've been given, each of you have been given a a number of things. Uh, You've been given a body, for one. You've been given a set of abilities. You've been given a social life. You've been given an emotional life. You've been given uh, an intellectual capacity. You've been given a certain amount of time on this earth. You've been given a certain degree of power or maybe financial means. But you don't think of yourself as a tenant of all of that, do you? You think of yourself as an owner because that's what you've been taught to do by your culture every day of your life. Let me give you an example. What's the primary argument for abortion? Abortion. The primary argument for abortion. No one should be able to tell a woman what she can or can't do with her body. Owners, not tenants. Why do people sitting in church get so angry when pastors preach about money? Because they're telling you that you aren't the owner of your money. You're just a tenant and you must not act like an owner of your money. Why do people get so upset when the church speaks out about sex outside of marriage? Because what we're preaching, see the reason that you get so angry is because we're preaching the Bible that says you aren't owners of your sexuality and your body. You're just tenants. God is the owner. But you don't want to hear that. (laughs) Do you see that like, if you, if, when we read that parable, if you were thinking to yourself, great, this is a Sunday I can take off. This isn't about me. This is about them. This is about those religious leaders. Do you see that this isn't just about the religious leaders of Israel? And let me ask you this. Can you feel the tension in your very being right now that exists between your status as tenant and God's status as owner? Like, as I talked about some of those things, money and and, and abortion, and, and sex, and some of those things. Could you feel the tension in your own body? There is this desire in every one of us. We want to be the owner. We don't want to be tenants. We want to be the, we want to be the owner. And there is a sense in which every one of us realizes that we're just a tenant. Now, now look, I realize... I understand that there are some of you here this morning that probably think that you're just a random accident of the of the universe. You know, um, you believe, let's say, a naturalistic evolution. And so you're like, man, I'm just a random accident of the universe. But I'm here to tell you that if that's what you believe, you don't live like that. I can promise you that you do not live like you're a random accident of the universe. You're not consistent in that. I've used this quote before. Let me say it again. The French philosopher Voltaire once said, he said that human beings are just tormented atoms in a bed of mud. Just tormented atoms in a bed of mud. So, here's a rock, here's you. A bunch of atoms. What's the difference? You're tormented. Why? Why are you tor- tormented? Because you have completely by accident developed the inconvenient faculty of consciousness. But That was just an accident. But you don't live like that. See, you don't live like you're just a random accident. Like, like here's an example. You despise racism. Why do you despise it? Well, you say, well, you know, human beings have dignity. What? Human beings have dignity? Human beings are just tormented atoms. They have more, no more dignity than a rock. Why are you so upset about racism? See, if you, if you lived consistently like that, that's what you would say. Two years ago, the Islamic extremist group Boko Haram kidnapped 276 Nigerian schoolgirls that the men could marry and breed with or sell for sex trafficking purposes. And you got upset at that. Those, you know, those, some of you who, who believe naturalistic evolution, you're just an accident of the universe. Some of you got upset about that. But why? Those girls are just tormented atoms in a bed of mud. On what basis could you logically argue that they were being mistreated? Nobody gets upset when a rock is thrown around or when you use it to hit another rock or when a chisel splits a rock in two. All I'm saying here is that everybody senses that they're a tenant. Even if you think that you are just a random accident, you don't live like you're a random accident of the universe. You know down deep inside that you're a tenant, but you hate it. And this is why the Apostle Paul, this is what he was saying in Romans chapter 1. He says, "...for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven." against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who watch watch this by their unrighteousness suppress suppress the truth the truth that God is the owner and that you are the tenant of your life this is why he says in Romans chapter 8 verse 7 he says for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile notice he doesn't say indifferent notice he doesn't say kind of doesn't like he says it's hostile toward God. You're a tenant, and you know it, but you hate it, just like the religious leaders in this parable. Okay. We've looked at the tenant's relationship to the owner, and, and, and we understand, right? Uh, all of you say amen if you understand that you're a tenant. You're a tenant. Okay. Now what I want to do is I want to look at the tenant's treatment Of the servants in this passage. Now, one of the reasons that verse 12 says that the religious leaders realize that Jesus is directing this parable toward them is because they know their nation's history. Again, Israel, God's vineyard, right? He gave the nation these spiritual leaders to watch out for them. Uh, to guide them so that the nation of Israel would be a testimony to all the nations of the world what it was like to live under the authority of the living God. The nations would see how God blessed Israel and how He guided Israel and how He enriched uh, Israel. And the nation would bear the fruit of God's work in their lives. That's the, this is the fruit in, the, in this parable that the owner of the vineyard uh, wanted. But almost from the very beginning of Israel's history, the nation rebelled against God. And the religious leaders, many of the religious leaders of Israel, even promoted and encouraged the nation's rebellion. And just as this parable says, God sent servants to Israel in the form of prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, messengers. Of God, like Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea, Amos and more, and even in the New Testament, John the Baptist, uh, whom they killed. Over hundreds of years, God, in his mercy and in his patience, sent them prophets as messengers who would speak on God's behalf, telling them essentially, Israel, you guys aren't the owners, you're just tenants. Bear the fruit that you owe me. Live like I've asked you to live. But if you read the prophets in the Old Testament, you'll see how these guys were treated. As this parable says, they were repeatedly mistreated and harmed and ridiculed, even killed, because the religious leaders and the nation of Israel, they didn't want to be tenants. They wanted to be owners. They wanted to live the way they wanted to live, and they didn't want God telling them, how to live. Now, yes, this, again, this parable was directed at the religious leaders, but surprise, surprise, it is directed at us too. God hasn't changed. His mercy and His patience and His love are the same as they always were. He sends, he sends every one of us repeated messengers into our lives, too, in order to remind us that, that we're tenants, that we're, we're not owners, that, that we're dependent upon Him. And let me give you some examples. Some of those messengers that God sends to you are people. Maybe they're pastors, right? But what do some churches do when a pastor tells them the truth? Well, they get, they get rid of them, right? It's like the just like the, the, uh, the tenants in this parable did. They got rid of the people that God sent. Some of them, some of the messengers are friends who love you enough to tell you the truth about yourself. Somebody tells you that you're an alcoholic. Somebody says to you, you know, you're, listen, you're addicted. You're a, you're a drug addict. Or somebody says, well, you're wrong to cheat on your spouse. And what do you do when they, when they tell you that? What do you do? Well, you kill the messenger, don't you? You shoot the messenger, and you just you cut him out of your life, just like these guys did here. Here's another messenger. Circumstances in your life. Listen to me. The longer you live, life will repeatedly let you know that you're not an owner in this world, that you're just a tenant in it. Now, I mean... Look, some of you are young enough. uh, It may seem like you're an owner for a little while, but just wait. Eventually, life is going to show you that you aren't the owner and you're not in control. You're just a tenant in this world, and it makes you mad. Makes you mad. Which often manifests itself in anxiety and depression and sort of being a control freak and sometimes just general anger. I want to tell you about a messenger that God sent into my life, and I am not proud of how I treated this messenger. Not proud of this at all. Um, Back when my family, when we lived in Dallas, I had an edger that I bought at Home Depot. And the thing about this edger was that it was extremely temperamental when it came to starting it. Like, if you just pulled the cord too slow, or too fast, or on any day ending in Y, it wouldn't start, okay? And, you know, so then you keep pulling the cord, and then you keep pulling the cord, and of course, what happens then? Well, it floods. It didn't matter if you were in a hurry or not. didn't matter if you had to jump in the shower in 30 minutes and get dressed to go, you know, do a wedding afterwards. It didn't matter if a huge storm was coming. It just wouldn't start. Now one day, I had finished mowing, and, and I needed to edge the yard, and I was in a hurry for some reason. I don't remember... What the reason was, it was summer down there, so it was about 150 degrees outside. I pull the cord, and naturally, it doesn't work. I pull it again, and I pull it again, and I pull it again, and it floods. So I have to sit and wait. I'm in a hurry. I have to sit and wait. I wait a while. Then I pull the cord again, and it doesn't work. I pull it again, and again, and again, and again, and it doesn't work. By now, I am dripping with sweat, and I am angry. I am violently angry at this point in time. I look to my left. I look to my right. No one on the street is watching. And so what do I do? What do I do? I kill it. I kill the edger. And I killed it real good. Real good. I picked it up by the cord and I swung it so that I could throw it like a shot put. And then I swung it against a tree. And then I slammed it on the ground. And I killed it so good. Anyone looking from their windows would have said, Hey, honey, isn't that the pastor? Uh over there. Now, here's the question. What was happening? What was happening? Why did I get so angry? I was angry because life wasn't going the way that I, as a tenant, thought it should. And look, I want to tell you something. Edgers can be messengers from God. They absolutely can. Circumstances in your life can be messengers from God. When your crops need rain, it won't rain. Or, or when you need the rain to stop, it, it keeps raining. You know, circumstances. People can be messages, messengers. Hard-to-love people uh, can be messengers in your life. And I'd like to ask you, what are the mes- messengers that God is sending you right now to remind you that you're just a tenant of your life? You're not an owner. What are those messengers? And, and how are you treating those messengers? Are you listening to them and responding appropriately? Or are you killing them, treating them shamefully, perhaps ignoring them? Some of you need to hear this. Some of you need to hear what I'm going to say here. Except for cases in which it's a genetic issue, and there are those cases, some of you are never going to get over the anger, the anxiety, the depression in your life until you realize that you're acting like you are an owner of your life when you're just a tenant. Now again, let me say that one more time because I want you to understand, I do believe that there are some cases of depression and anxiety and things that are genetic. I absolutely believe that. But there are also cases of these things that are all about you trying to be an owner in your life and not just being a tenant. And you won't find peace and joy in your life until you recognize this, that you're trying to be an owner when you're just a tenant And then repent of that and realize that if God, who is the owner of your life, isn't giving you something that you think you need, it's because in His love and His mercy, He knows you don't need it. How are you treating the messengers in your life? Oh, we hate being tenants, don't we? We hate it.
1: We want to be owners,
0: but we're not. And the sooner that you realize that, the more joy and the more peace that you will begin to experience. Okay, finally this, finally this. I want to look at the tenant's attitude toward the son in this story, okay? We've looked at, at, at their relationship with God and we looked at how they've treated, you know, the servants, the messengers that God sent. Okay, finally, the tenant's attitude toward the son. Now, if the religious leaders... We're beginning to catch on, as Jesus tells this parable, if if they were beginning to catch on when Jesus started talking about the messengers that that the owner had sent them, the trap was sprung when He started talking about the Son whom He loved. Now, some of you who've been with us for a while will remember that back early in the Gospel of Mark, God used that same phrase, the Son whom He loved, uh, to describe Jesus when Jesus was being baptized by John. Some of you may remember that. Now you'll notice in the parable that as the owner sends his messengers, the tenants get increasingly violent with each one that is sent. And finally when the sun comes, it all erupts. They kill him and they throw him out of the vineyard, which is exactly what Mark has told us in previous places they're planning to do to Jesus. Now, at the very beginning of my talk this morning, I read to you, like, those three quotes, you remember? And and I, I, I said that they represented with stunning accuracy the hatred that is in every human being's heart toward God. What's the proof of that? The proof is this, that when God came to earth in the person of Jesus, even from his infancy, humanity tried to kill him. And in the end, we, hear me now, hear me now, we, not just the Jews, we beat him and mocked him and tortured him and killed him because we didn't like what he had to say. And some of you say, you know, like, like you would say, well, you know, I don't, I don't hate God. I'm just kind of indifferent to him. I'm, I'm not... I'm not angry. I'm not hateful toward him. Okay, maybe I'm disobedient, but I'm not angry or hateful. But here's the thing. In fact, a pastor by the name of Tim Keller argues, and I'm paraphrasing here what he says, but he argues that the way that you know that you're becoming a Christian, that the Holy Spirit is beginning to open your eyes, is when you begin to realize that sin isn't just the act of breaking a commandment or a rule or something, but that sin is a whole attitude of resentment toward the crown claims of Christ over your life and that that resentment permeates you. It's there, it's there, but you won't admit it. That's what sin is. Sin's not just breaking a rule. Sin is saying, I resent you, God, Telling me that I'm just a tenant and you being the owner, I want to be the owner of my life. That's what sin is. You don't want God telling you what you can and can't do with your sexuality, with your sexual preferences, with your gender. You don't want God telling you what you can and can't do with your business, with your money, with your employees. You don't want God telling you what you can and can't do with your intellect. You don't want those things. You want to be the owner, not the tenant. But wait a minute. Listen to this. Some of you, like you're not in that category. You're not in that category of people who don't want God telling them what to do. Some of you are very fine, very moral, very upstanding people. You're a good person. You work hard to be a good person. You follow all the rules. You obey the law. You always recycle and you drive a Prius. There are some of you that are like that. You resent that God calls you a sinner. Okay, they're sinners, I get it, but not me. Look at me, I'm moral, I'm upright. You resent that He calls you a sinner. You resent that He says that you need a Savior and that you're so sinful that even in your goodness that Christ had to die for you. And oh, that makes you so mad. See, see, I hope what you're getting is that this, this, this hatred toward God It's there. It's very much there in your life. You just refuse to admit it. He's the owner. He's your owner. And you're just the tenant. Look at something. Jesus says to the religious leaders in verse 10, he quotes Psalm 118. I don't have time to go through all of this this morning, but he says, haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, what does that mean? It means this. It means that Jesus, whom the religious leaders rejected, and who will work to kill in cooperation with the Roman government, that Jesus will become the cornerstone of God's work in the world. And here's what it means specifically for you. There are two approaches to Jesus. He is either the rock upon which you build your life, or if you reject Him, He is the rock that you will be crushed by. Here's the thing. Look how far God went to reach, uh, to reach out, just out of His love for you. Look how far He reached out. He sent His Son as a messenger to you. Only with this particular messenger, his son, God treated him as the enemy of God that you are. And if you can just admit that every sin that you've ever committed is an act of hostile resentment against God, Christ will come into your life and you'll build a whole new life on Him. He'll be the cornerstone of your life. But on the other hand, if you don't admit that, You will stay an enemy of God, and in the end you will be crushed by Jesus because, and nobody likes to hear this, He, Jesus, will be the judge of your life. Here's some truth. There's a judgment coming, folks, at the end of your life because you're a tenant and God is the owner. The one who is treated by God as an enemy on the cross so that you could be treated like a friend, he will be the judge. And you know what I'm doing with this as I, as I tell you this? You know, you know what you call this when I tell you this? I'm doing an intervention. That's what I'm doing. I'm doing an intervention. Because some of you are in such denial of your hatred toward God that I'm trying to open your eyes and to make you look at the cross to see both your hatred toward God and God's endless love for you in Jesus. I'm doing an intervention. Would you just this morning come to the place where you're able to say, yeah, there is this hatred in me toward you, God, because I want to be the owner of my life, not you. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads with me if you would. I want to tell you the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news is that while you are an enemy of God, Jesus, in his great love for you, hung on a cross so that your sins can be forgiven, so that your sin of resentment toward God can be forgiven, that hatred can be forgiven. And if you will believe in that you will become a friend of God. In this moment in the privacy of your seat would you just admit this admit it don't stay in denial admit you're an enemy you you hate God there's you're not just indifferent toward him you hate him. And would you this morning just say Lord Jesus just look at the cross and say Lord Jesus I see the extent of my hatred in that you had to die on that cross. But, Lord Jesus, I see God's love reaching out for me, a messenger to me in you, Lord Jesus. And I want to be the friend of God, not an enemy of God. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray this, that the Spirit of God this morning would permeate uh, this room, would permeate the lives of people in this room, and that he would penetrate the hearts of some and open their eyes to their hatred and resentment of you. And Lord, I pray that as they do, that there are many that would come to a place where they look at you, uh, Lord Jesus, and they would recognize that that's how far God went to reach them. And that they would become this morning friends of God. Lord Jesus, we pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.